This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of Northern Illinois University's STEM Read. This episode is called Fighting Mind Parasites. My guest is Dr. Andy Norman. As the pandemic continues and we face down the Delta variant, we're all looking for ways to keep our bodies healthy and safe. But something else is going viral. Bad ideas. How do we keep our minds safe against a pandemic of misinformation and bad ideas? My guest is Dr. Andy Norman, author of the book Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. Dr. Norman is an award-winning author and public philosopher who has researched the origins of human reasoning. He also directs the Humanism Initiative at Carnegie Mellon University and is the founder of CIRCE, the Cognitive Immunity Research Collaborative. I'll talk to Dr. Norman about his new book and his thoughts on STEM education and growth mindset. He'll also share advice on how we can all work to protect ourselves and others from bad ideas. After our interview, I'll also share a clip from one of our recent future-telling webinars with authors Joelle Charbonneau and Aaron Starmer. Joelle and Aaron will talk about their recent books that explore memes, the internet, and viral ideas through a fictional lens. First, here's my interview with Dr. Andy Norman. Well, thank you again so much for joining me today. If you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do. Uh, thanks, Jillian. Yeah, my name is Andy Norman. I direct the Humanism Initiative at Carnegie Mellon University. My day job, I guess, is to think as a philosopher and a scientist about how minds spot and shed bad ideas and try to work out ways to strengthen our capacity to do that. And it seems to me especially important in these crazy times. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So tell us about mental immunity. Yeah. So mental immunity is both the name of my book, which just came out a couple of days ago, and a mind's capacity to resist the uptake of bad ideas. Ideas can be bad because they're false. They can be bad because they cause harm. They can be bad because they're dispiriting. There are many different causal and logical properties that ideas have. Historically, scientists have looked primarily at whether or not there is good evidence for ideas. And many of the religions of the world are concerned primarily with what are the sort of the psychological benefits of their favored beliefs. I should say psychological or social, perhaps. But it turns out each of those institutions has something to teach us about what counts as responsible thinking and believing. And if we can learn from both traditions, we can come up with better ways to promote wisdom. Uh, and that's what my book is about. <laughs> so this is an idea that it's been taking shape for a while. Can you tell us about where the idea of mental immunity started and why you think it's so critical right now? So it turns out that the science of mental immunity goes back almost 60 years. This is one of the best kept secrets in science, I think. So in the 1960s, a psychologist named William McGuire wanted to understand how to induce resistance to persuasion in a mind. And he did some experiments and discovered that if you expose a mind to a weakened form of an argument, 
the mind will often develop resistance to stronger versions of the same argument. In fact, if you accompany the weakened form of the argument with a little derision or a refutation or a little disdain, it enhances the effect even more and makes the test subject almost averse to the view being argued for. People have been manipulating other people's mental immune systems for centuries, sometimes without knowing it. But it turns out that you can inoculate minds not just against new information or weakened arguments, but you can also inoculate minds against disinformation. And so there's a new species of inoculation theory, they call it, where we're actually learning how to inoculate minds against, for example, climate denial, climate change denial. And I think this research offers a lot of hope for a less crazy future. <laughs> I think that's so fascinating. It really does seem so similar to what we talk about when we're talking about vaccines. You, you, you do well to notice the parallel. <laughs> By the way, you'll, you'll find, you'll discover some fun stories about the history of immunology in the, in the book. So. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed that. And I, I think it's really fascinating to look at the way that different vaccines have been either, you know, welcomed or shunned looking at yes. the polio vaccine and how there were celebrations in the streets, church bells ringing, you know, people dancing and hugging and crying. And then yeah. with the COVID vaccine, it's like, oh, do we have one? I don't think I'll take it. <laughs> that, that's interesting contrast. I think that it uh, speaks to a real change in attitude, almost a sea change. And um, I'm not sure we're headed in the right direction there. Right. So it's been said that we're dealing with more than one pandemic. And certainly there, there's arguments for several types of pandemics that we're experiencing. But for our conversation, looking at the COVID pandemic and the pandemic of misinformation. Mm -hmm. So so how are they similar? Yeah. The World Health Organization has recently declared that infodemics, epidemics of misinformation, are a real thing. You can use the, the conceptual tools and the mathematical tools of epidemiology to study the spread of disinformation online. And it turns out that the spread you know, matches all the same equations that explain the spread of, of diseases. So I argue in the book that bad ideas and false ideas, disinformation, are in fact mind parasites, not like parasites but actual mind parasites. And that when you can get your head around that, you start to see the world in dramatically different ways. And among other things, you start to see ways in which our mental immune systems are being compromised by ideas that are spreading through our culture. So when you become aware of these things, you become more aware of ways we can counteract them and begin to strengthen our mental immune systems against cognitive contagion. And I want to come back to this idea that this is a public health issue. But before that, <laughs> I think it's interesting what you said about these things spreading through culture. And yeah. I notice in your book, you have several pop culture references. It's, it's very funny. <laughs> I, you know, some of the things you reference are the Ghostbusters and, and Game of Thrones. You talk about Bill Nye, the science guy. So what role does pop culture play in this idea of mind parasites? And what role can it play in mental immunity? 
Wow. Ever gotten an earworm? (laughs) (laughs) That would be an example of some of the most successful uh, musical hits are ones that are kind of stick in our memories and make us want to hum along. And when we hum them along, a lot of times we'll spread those tunes to other people. So the way in which information spreads through human populations is eerily similar to things we've been studying for a long time in the biological sphere. And in fact, there's a whole new approach to understanding human culture based on the idea of of a meme, which is just kind of a a bit of information or or a behavior that can be copied and that can propagate through social networks. There's a good bit of scientific debate about whether that whether we can get a complete understanding of culture using those techniques. But at the very least, it it enriches our understanding of how cultures work. When you research the history of disease, you see that there are things that accelerated it, right? Like the way that as a society, we started living in groups and started living in cities and having Mm -hmm. closer contact with each other. And then you see this idea, looking at pop culture accelerating and culture wars accelerating through things like Twitter. Yeah. And of course, with the internet and social media, we've handed billions of people on earth the power to spread poorly vetted ideas to literally thousands and thousands, sometimes millions of others. And I'm sure that seemed like a good idea when we set it up, but it's starting to look like it has a serious downside. And we need to think much harder about not just speech rights, but speech responsibilities as well, because irresponsible thinking and irresponsible talking create a clear and present danger to us all, as we've seen in recent years. Yeah. I think it's interesting when you see these jumps in technology, everyone says, well, that will be the end of war because we'll understand each other so much better and we'll have this ability to communicate. I know that you know, Kurt Vonnegut said that with, with television, we can see these people. We know they're just like us. How could we keep having wars after this? And so you saw that with social media too. Like we have this window into each other. So how did it fall apart? So yeah. I want to shift then <laughs> to mm-hmm. why are minds so hard to change, especially the minds of adults? So turns out minds are especially hard to change when they come to identify with their beliefs. So psychologists call this identity protective cognition. And basically that means that if you get very fond of certain ideas, believe them, and then hitch your sense of worth to those ideas, then as soon as somebody comes along and raises questions about them, you get defensive very, very fast. And it turns out that the deep reason we get defensive so fast is that threatening information can trigger a mental immune overreaction. So I'll give you an example. I was raised in a household that practically worshiped Martin Luther King. Decades later, as an adult, I actually heard that Martin Luther King was unfaithful to his wife. Now, when I heard this, I did not want to believe it. I refused to believe it. I convinced myself that this must be a slander created by the Central Intelligence Agency to diminish Martin Luther King. They were all, my mind just generated all kinds of reasons for rejecting what turned out to be true and correct information. So my mind's immune system overreacted because I had 
accorded Martin Luther King almost a sacred space in my thinking. So it turns out that having sacred values and treating certain things as central to your value or your identity that has a very significant downside. It can close your mind and make you incapable of thinking in a fair-minded way about some of the most important issues that human beings face. And the political divisions we see in our time are a direct result of this identity-protective cognition. And you talk in the book about this happening on the right as well as on the left. I know I've seen that in the, you know, the Twitter mob mentality that sometimes happens on the left. So how does that work, this idea of, of making something sacred? And how is that something we can break down? You, well, one of the things I want to say to that is that if we can all raise our children to form their identities around the value of honest inquiry, rather than around particular beliefs that one that might or might not survive honest inquiry... <laughs> then we're preparing our children to dialogue in a much more fruitful way. So if I teach my children that X, Y, and Z are articles of faith that they must accept without question, then anytime they enter into a dialogue where those sacred values feel threatened, their minds will close and they will have a hard time dialoguing in an honest way. If we instead raise our children to place the value of honest inquiry and, and really finding out, making that a, that a sacred value or something like a sacred value, then our identities don't become as big an obstacle towards effective communication and learning. I think that answers part of your question. Um, <laughs> let, let me give an example to address what may, may have been the other part. President Trump held a press conference back when COVID pandemic was just getting going. And in it, he was, he was musing out loud, and in it, he turned to Dr. Deborah Burks, who was, I think, head of his coronavirus task force or something. And he mused out loud that maybe we could inject disinfectants into people to protect them against COVID. Now, anybody who knows anything about disinfectants and their effect on the human body knows that that's not a good idea. And so many of my friends on the political left began to ridicule the president for this, what they viewed as a sophomoric and ignorant suggestion. And it turns out that some of Trump's supporters actually heard this press conference. One of them actually called up a public health official and said, I'm not sure whether I should have my child ingest bleach or whether I should inject the bleach into my child. Can you help me understand which I should do? Mm which underscores how irresponsible it was for President Trump to muse out loud about such things. So there was good reason for outrage on the political left, and yet the ridicule they subjected him to can be faulted for this reason. It's an important part of science that you be able to throw out crazy hypotheses and at least give them a little bit of consideration. And if you go back to that clip from the press conference, President Trump was clearly just throwing out a suggestion. He was floating a hypothesis. Now, to many people with a, you know, an eighth grade science education, it was a ridiculous suggestion. But arguably, he should not have been ridiculed for simply trying to throw a suggestion into the mix. He actually turned to Deborah Burks and said, maybe we could try this, right? 
he was offering it as a proposal. He wasn't asserting that it was a solution. He was suggesting that it might be worth investigating. So I can understand why many people on the right felt as though the disdain for President Trump was unfair because there was an element of unfairness about it. And yet it was profoundly dangerous and ill-informed rumination on a national stage in a way that could have killed and may have harmed children. Thinking as a STEM educator myself, I was interested in your ideas about why STEM education hasn't gotten us out of this crisis or you know, <laughs> avoided the crisis in the first place and, and has failed to prepare us adequately for the challenge of climate change. So can you talk a little bit about why our previous efforts haven't worked as well as we wanted them to? Yeah, that's a great question. I think people in in the education field have assumed for a long time that critical thinking instruction and STEM learning together will help to inoculate our minds against nonsense. And what we're learning in our time is that they're not enough. We're, We're not doing enough to strengthen our minds against the kind of viral nonsense that can proliferate rapidly across the internet. There are easily identifiable reasons why they're not enough. On the STEM side, there's a deep orthodoxy that there's an important distinction between facts and values. Science is supposed to have the definitive method for determining what the facts are, but it's generally accepted that science doesn't really have any particular ability to determine right from wrong, and that it should therefore keep its nose out of value questions. But once you buy into that idea, you can compartmentalize many, many questions, including the the questions of politics, which often involve a value component. You can compartmentalize them in your mind as one where science only bears indirectly on the outcome. That's problematic because that's used as an excuse to indulge in unaccountable talk about right and wrong, unaccountable talk about which policies are the right ones for us to collectively pursue. What we need in our time is forms of ethical and political discourse that are as accountable to rigorous norms as scientific discourses. So it's not enough to say we have to think in disciplined, accountable ways about the facts, but oh, values, those are different. They're subjective, believe whatever you want. That has been an excuse for a long time for indulging in unaccountable thinking. And it's high time we we did away with that distinction. And by the way, when you do get a, do away with that distinction, you start to see ways in which we can think scientifically about ethics, about right and wrong. And that's a really exciting prospect. I liked what you said about honest inquiry. And I think that that idea of inquiry has been filtering into STEM education. And really, when I was in school, it was that idea of of filling your head with the right facts. Now we are seeing a shift toward getting people to start asking questions. So how do you see growth mindset as helping with mental immunity? Yeah. So I actually think that the emerging science of mental immunity I call it cognitive immunology, as a way of helping us better understand what the growth mindset involves. So Jillian, you're referring to some really interesting research that makes a distinction between growth mindsets and fixed mindsets. And it turns out 
that if you bring the right mindset to life and to learning, <laughs> your thinking begins to adapt in all of these interesting ways to life's complexities and you become a better adjusted person. And your professional success, your lifetime income, your happiness, the success of your marriage, there's like dozens of ways you benefit from adopting the growth mindset. And if you instead adopt the fixed mindset and resist learning about those things, you end up harming your prospects. What I think cognitive immunology brings is, is a more detailed way of understanding how to construct the growth mindset. So we gain some insight into what the growth mindset entails and how we can embody it more fully by studying the mind's immune system and what helps it work better. Interestingly, you talk in your book about how this is your kind of your wish for a new field of science, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so what, what is happening to move this from an idea to more of a scientific field? In one sense, I'm trying to conjure a new science <laughs> with words, um, but philosophers have been doing that for, for thousands of years, and we've been incubating sciences for much of that time. But there's actually a good bit of scientific evidence and evidence from history that this science is coming and it's coming fast. So the concept of memes and the science of information epidemiology are up and running. I mentioned earlier that psychologists have been studying how to inoculate minds for 60 years. Turns out that's premised on the idea that minds have something like an immune system that can be trained right through the inoculant. So really, all, it's not so much that I'm conjuring the science out of nothing with words. I'm just, I'm connecting dots that are very much there and saying, this science is already taking its first wobbly steps. And it's high time we recognized the literal truth of bad ideas are mind parasites. Minds do in fact have immune systems. And yes, we can use things like mind inoculants to strengthen those immune systems. I love that. I did write that down when I was taking notes on the book about philosophy being an incubator for science. That's great. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, we we uh, we philosophers aren't used to getting much respect, but I I think what we what we do is can be very important. Yeah. So let's talk about this then as a public health crisis. So why do you see the idea of mindset parasites as a public health crisis? And what do you think is a good public health response to it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so here once again, is I'm, I'm able to call on some, some scientific experts. The, it's the World Health Organization itself that is saying, is claiming that infodemics, right? Epidemics of misinformation are a health crisis. So one of the pieces of evidence they cite for that is that misconceptions about the COVID vaccine are actually a significant obstacle towards our achieving herd immunity. So part of the larger public health challenge of protecting our species against COVID involves inoculating enough minds against vaccine resistance or, or anti-vax attitudes so that we can actually achieve that herd, herd immunity, both the biological kind and the cognitive kind. <laughs> I mean, I think um, the spread of conspiracy thinking the idea that climate change is a hoax, QAnon, divisive political ideologies. I mean, political polarization 
seems to me extremely likely that this polarization, that the bad ideas that are spreading and tearing us and dividing us against one another, that they rep represent a clear and present danger to our nation. And in the context of climate change, to our survival on this planet. Because I'm an implementer at heart, <laughs> I do want you to give us a little bit of advice, if you can. What are some ways that we could start, in addition to reading the book, inoculating ourselves and others against mind parasites? Wonderful question. And I always admire that as a philosopher, uh, Jillian is, is referencing a distinction I make between flaming clarifiers and flaming implementers. And as a philosopher, I'm a fl certifiable flaming clarifier, <laughs> but I do, I, I do try to make practical suggestions when I can. So the science of, of mental immunity suggests that we need to be more aware of the way in which minds fight off bad ideas. And, and we need to consciously help our minds do that. So doubts, it turns out, are antibodies, are mental antibodies. When a new idea comes your way and you have a little vague disquiet in the back of your head, that's your mind's immune system trying to flag something about that idea that might be problematic. And a lot of times we just let that disquiet exist at a kind of inchoate level. We're not quite sure why the idea makes us uncomfortable, but it does. If you learn to zoom in your, your focus, on that disquiet and see what's causing it. You can articulate your doubt with a question. And when you do that, your mind's immune system gets stronger and your ability to, to spot bad ideas grows. So we should all learn to listen to our doubts. That, that's one thing. Another thing we can do is to always reason collaboratively. When culture wars break out and people divide into camps that they feel are mutually irreconcilable. They start to gather reasons and use them as weapons to beat people on the other side and to show that we're right and you're wrong. When you start reasoning in that way, you lose the capacity to reason in a fair-minded way. You actually become a culture warrior rather than an inquirer. So science, inquiry, problem solving, all of these require that we bring the mentality of the inquirer. I call it the way of inquiry, but you could equally call it the growth mindset. But when we instead treat reasons as weapons rather than as ways to guide one another's attention towards relevant considerations so that they can appreciate the pros or the cons of accepting something, our mental immune system starts to decay. So never use reasons as weapons. Always make sure that you're using reasons to promote understanding. Uh, I could go on because there are dozens of um, <laughs> such practical suggestions. Go on, but, give um, us a few more. <laughs> a few more, all right. So here's one. I mentioned earlier that identity protective cognition. You can subvert your own mind by allowing your identity to form around a set of questionable beliefs. The alternative to that, I, I recommend that we treat our beliefs as house guests that might wear out their welcome at some point. So if certain beliefs comfort you or, or work well for you because they help you navigate the world, accept them as temporary house guests that might eventually be worth saying goodbye to. Because you'll, you may well reach a point where those beliefs start to interfere with your capacity to learn and grow. So hold your beliefs lightly, check that they're serving you well and serving 
the interests of the people you care about and ideally make sure they're serving the interests of all of humanity. And if not, start to let go of them and replace them with an alternative that does a better job of serving legitimate interests. Here's a final one. And this one's most people carry around within them a certain picture of what a reasonable belief looks like. They assume that what makes a reasonable belief reasonable are the reasons or evidence that support it. So when we wonder whether an idea is a good one, something we should hold on to, we look underneath it, so to speak, for supporting evidence. And if we find some, we go, aha, see, it's a good idea. And we stop thinking. The problem with that is that it exacerbates a well-known cognitive bias called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias basically says, think until you have something that confirms what you want to believe and then stop. (laughs) And it turns out we all do this way more than is healthy. And the way to induce a healthy alternative is to replace that picture of reasonable belief with one that Socrates championed way back in ancient Athens. He basically argued that a a truly reasonable belief will withstand all of the different questions that you might throw at it and deflect them all. So if you can replace your picture of a reasonable belief as something that sits atop a solid edifice with a different picture that treats a reasonable belief as one that is genuinely stable under questioning, turns out that's a very, very powerful way to make your mind more resistant to bad ideas. Yeah, that's very cool. I think it's a fascinating book. And I think like other public health issues, this is something that everyone needs to look at within themselves. You know, that was one thing that struck me. It's not about one side being right or wrong. It's about everyone going, you know, what what really works about what I'm thinking and what doesn't. Many people look around the world today, assume that all the irrationality is on the other side and very little to none of it on our own. But it turns out that all of our mental immune systems are imperfect and most of them are functioning at a fraction of their true potential. So I think there's a lot we can all do to improve on this dimension. And just as you're supposed to, if you're in an airplane and the cabin starts decompressing, you're supposed to put your own oxygen mask on first before you help the people to either side of you. In the same way, you should approach my book with the spirit that, wow, you know, there's some things here I can learn to become a wiser version of myself. And maybe then the people around me will be willing to hear my suggestions for how they can improve as well. Wisdom cultivation starts at home. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your ideas. And, you know, this is something that in the age of the pandemic, I'm happy to spread. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been been a pleasure. I loved your questions, Jillian. You just heard my interview with Dr. Andy Norman, author of the book Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. The book was fascinating, practical, and fun to read. I really enjoyed it, and I had a wonderful time picking Dr. Norman's brain. In STEM education, we talk a lot about instilling resilience and fostering growth mindset and teaching students to learn from failure. Dr. Norman's book seems like a great way to build on those ideas and to keep parasitic thoughts out of our brains. 
Another way to keep your brain healthy is to keep listening to amazing conversations with authors and scientists. We do that here on the STEM Read podcast, but we also do that at NIU's Future Telling webinar series, which brings together science fiction writers and STEM experts to explore cutting-edge research that is changing our stories and our society. Authors Joelle Charbonneau and Aaron Starmer joined me on a recent episode to talk about their latest books that explore memes, the internet, and viral ideas through a fictional lens. Here's Joelle Charbonneau and Aaron Starmer. We'll lead off with Joelle Charbonneau talking about her book, Need. I write young adult, but more often than not for young adults, I am writing things that are, are thriller, near future, sometimes even fantasies, contemporary but I do put a lot of computer science, strangely enough, into it. I don't always consider myself the most computer literate person, but it's amazing how technology is so much a part of our lives that you can't escape it. So I have written a standalone thriller that is about social media and what could be behind some of the platforms and the, you know, and where is the line that we draw in the sand, you know, for ourselves when we are on social media, and. What could be behind people who are rewarding us for not so necessarily great choices that we make? And my most recent series, Verify and Disclose, is about words being taken out of our language by the government, you know, with our technology always pushing the envelope about going green and avoiding, you know, having paper books and more electronic books. At what, what point could we lose pieces of our history just with a click of a button? And when people stop learning how to verify facts and only believe the wonderful Facebook posts sometimes they see, and believe those things are real, at what point do words start to distort our reality in a way that we suddenly can't recognize it from what it was only a few years ago, which sometimes feels very familiar right now. Yeah, absolutely. I hate it when our dystopians become our reality. That's been- Yeah, it, it's a little, it's a near future, but it was supposed to be alternate history. It's not supposed to be real history. Right, yeah. And I, I love in need how people are anonymous in the social network site. And so they push the envelope more and more in terms of acceptable behavior. And that tends to leak out into real life. So I think that was an interesting way that you wrote that. And Aaron Starmer, speaking about um, ways that people act in real life, <laughs> um, as opposed to online, your newest book is Meme. Yep. This is a murder mystery and uh, came out this year. Well, actually, it's not really a murder mystery. It's, it's you know who did the murder. Uh, it's whether they will get away with it. It's a group of high school students murder one of their friends that they think is dangerous. And then uh, they bury his body with a confession, a video confession. And somehow that video confession gets out and a screen cap from it becomes a meme. And uh, it's sort of exploring the, uh, what memes mean in our society, not just with young people, but what they mean in terms of political change that's going on now. And what they mean in terms of the evolutions of ideas. I'm really interested in, in things that sort of spiral out of control and you don't know where they started. So it's the story of a, a group of teenagers that are trying to find, trying to protect themselves from getting in trouble while no one else really knows what they did. They just know this meme that's out there and sort of how that eats away at them. So uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in, obviously, when you're writing about young people uh, and you're writing contemporary things, uh, You've got to be interested in social media and how it affects them. But 
this is actually slightly a period piece. I wrote it in 2015 and 2016, and then had to rewrite it because of the changes in the world. And uh, I kept it set in 2016 because I sort of viewed that as an important moment for memes in the political and social discourse. You just heard Joelle Charbonneau and Aaron Starmer teasing some of their latest books that explore memes, the internet, and viral ideas through a fictional lens. Books like Meme, Verify, and Need are a great way to explore internet culture and its effects on our thoughts and actions. And like everything else these authors write, the books are fast-paced and fun to read. You can hear the rest of Aaron and Joelle's conversation with STEM experts on future telling Does the Future Compute at go.niu.edu slash futuretelling. You can also register to attend our next free future telling webinar, which takes place Wednesday, August 4th at 6.30 p.m. Our guests are author Benjamin Percy and historian Andy Bruno. Ben is the author of The Darknet, Wolverine, The Long Night, and several comic book series from DC and Marvel. His latest novel is The Ninth Metal, which explores all the crazy things that happen when a metal-rich meteorite strikes a small town in northern Minnesota. Andy is an environmental historian of Russia and the Soviet Union. His current book project explores the history of the 1908 Tunguska Explosion. I hope you'll join us next Wednesday at Future Telling, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Andy Norman, author of Mental Immunity. You can learn more about Dr. Norman's work at andynorman.org and in our show notes. Here's hoping that all of you vaccinate your bodies and inoculate your minds. Stay safe, and thanks for listening. This is the STEM Read Podcast. The STEM Read Podcast is produced in association with WNIJ. Support for the STEM Read Podcast comes from NIU STEAM and Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus.